This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 247 tonight. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Rick Barnett. He is a psychologist, uh, and we're going to be discussing psychedelic therapy, mental health issues, and uh, addiction, which are his specialties. So uh, this is the second time he's been on. If you have not seen him on before, I recommend going to watch the first episode we did with him. I thought it was an excellent talk. Uh, I forget what, what number it is, but you can go back and find it. It wasn't that long ago. Um, and before we get started here, if you're interested, you can go follow uh, Dr. Rick. I have the link down uh, to his Twitter account, which he's pretty active on Twitter. Uh, you can also find him on LinkedIn. And uh, you can find us on, uh, well, check out our link tree. We've got everything on there. If you want to support the show, we have our Patreon, which we did an excellent episode with Dr. Michael Masters last night. I just uploaded that onto there where we discussed, it was kind of just a fun episode in general, music, um, anthropology, UFOs, UAP, uh, and, and all sorts of stuff. So go check that out. Um, also, we have a merch store. Um, and if you want to support the show, uh, just go leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we really appreciate that. So, uh, But yeah, welcome back on the show, Dr. Rick. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me back. It's an honor. I love talking to you guys last time and happy to be back again. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so since we had you on last time, you recently just had a, uh, what looked like a very, very excellent event in Vermont uh, with some of the biggest names in psychedelic uh, medicine and therapy. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we co-founded the Psychedelic Society of Vermont in June of 2021, and that arose out of a need that I felt after completing my psychedelic therapy and research training through the California Institute on Integral Studies, really wanting to um, keep the energy flowing from that group into uh, a Vermont group. And we founded that a group of healthcare professionals got together in June of last year, and we've been meeting every month 
uh, regularly to discuss anything going on in the psychedelic world, research, trends, news, uh, music, events, uh, anything that would come up. And it's been a growing group of people. We're up to 105 members now or, or people that are on our Google group. And out of that, we, we organized and pulled off a fantastic event on the summer solstice, June 20th and 21st. Anybody who's listening can go to vermontpsychedelic.org and you can click on the video replay. It's all free to anybody who wants to watch it. You enter the password gratitude. And what you get to see there is really just a treat. We had people like Rick Doblin, who's the head of MAPS, many people know. Matt Johnson, uh, who's a longtime researcher in psychedelics from Johns Hopkins University. Ben Sessa came over from England. Um, he has been a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, psychiatrist for quite a while, involved in a lot of research. Uh, Carolyn Dorson is a nurse practitioner and a PhD from Rutgers, formerly from New York University. She gave a fantastic talk uh, uh, called The Cosmology of Belonging really the emphasis on community in the psychedelic space so important and you know a lot of other presenters we had the guys from psychedelics today were there and did a panel discussion and some folks from mass general hospital and victor cabral who's the director of policy at fluence was so we just had some really fantastic speakers but besides that you guys i mean the vibe was awesome people were so connected. It was very intimate. The weather was fantastic. We even had Jerry from Ben and Jerry's came and served ice cream to everybody in the middle of the event, which That's is awesome. just you know, classic Vermont style kind of thing. It was held at the Trap Family Lodge, you know, the, the sound of music. Uh, that's where the event was. So it was nice. really just a wonderful, wonderful get together. And we had a uh, we had a dance uh, that evening in between the two days. We We all got together under a tent and did some um what's called uh basically five rhythms or some sort of like um community dancing a specific kind of dancing to elicit um movement and mo and emotion and that was that was all part of it it was just really really good event yeah no Sounds it looked amazing. awesome we've even had some of those people we've had matt johnson on the show we've had uh kyle and um uh, Joe from Psychedelics Today on before. Those are all great people that are super, super knowledgeable about these topics. And uh, of course, Rick Doblin. And yeah, it just looked like an amazing event. And uh, um, yeah, I wish I could have gone. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you guys had the fish food flowing though from Jerry over there. So yeah, we had the fish food. I don't know if we had actually, that was not one of the flavors that he served, but uh -oh. yeah. Um, I actually had wanted Mike Gordon. I was, I, I have some connection to Mike Gordon from fish and I was hoping some, somehow we could weave Mike Gordon from fish into it and have him come play the bass for us or something <laughs> like that. Maybe, maybe next year. Yeah, that would be sweet. Um, yeah, again, that's, that's awesome. So is that something you plan on doing like annually or? We're in in the works. We're talking about doing a fall equinox event in 2023. Mm. So next year in the fall, as we change seasons from summer to fall, uh, it happens to fall on a weekend and the 22nd to the 24th of September of 2023. So that's our target date for our next one. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, start, we'll try and get a correspondent out there for you. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll send Maurice out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I... Uh, 
maybe you can try and get out there. I, I've only actually been to Vermont once, and it was we stopped in Mount Pelier as we were driving to the Fish It Festival uh, in Limestone, Maine. Uh, but Mount Pelier was beautiful. I mean, we had like a great lunch and, uh, yeah, the, the lush, um, you know, it was kind of in between the end of summer and fall. So the, the colors of the trees and everything, it was beautiful. Yeah. It's a little bit of a par- uh, slice of paradise here. Parts of Vermont are pretty uh, poor and impoverished and, and, uh, very, it's very rural and some parts are just very, um, beautiful. I mean, it's all very beautiful. It's just, uh, a very diverse state in that sense but it's not diverse racially there's you know it's a very white state one of the things we tried to have at the conference was try to represent um you know the broadest possible community so um you know i think equity and inclusion in the psychedelic space is is really important so um i don't know how that plays out actually in in vermont in terms of um uh, racial diversity, but there's all kinds of ways diversity is defined, um, sexual diversity, neurodivergence, um, gender diversity. So there's all there's all kinds of ways diversity is, is represented uh, or should be represented in, in the psychedelic space. So a little bit of a tangent there, but yeah, no, it's it's it was beautiful. So next mark your calendar, guys, you have a, you have a complimentary access to the event if you're able to make it. Awesome. Write it down right now. Um, so was there anybody specifically that talked or any piece of the uh, event that you really, really thought, um, you learned a lot or enjoyed or just something special? I mean, I'm sure it was all special, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Something that stood out to you. Yeah, they were all, they were all fantastic in their own right. One thing that stood out was the fact that all presenters stayed and listened to the other presenters Mm. and they interacted with each other a lot. Uh, so that was just unique. Usually at conferences you have presenter come in and they leave and they have to fly out the next day or or whatever but all these presenters stayed and listened to each other and engaged with each other so there's a level of intimacy that i don't think you would see at other conferences but also you know the two uh, all the talks stood out very much they're all in their own right fantastic and you know carolyn dorson talking about the cosmology of belonging loneliness connection community um, and where psychedelics uh, can play a pivotal role in that. That was really uh, a very meaningful talk for me. And Victor Cabral, um, when people talk about their own personal experiences with psychedelics and how they impacted their lives, um, it can be very powerful. And Victor Cabral was very personal in talking about his personal experience, a documentary that he's working on with his, with his friends uh, from his neighborhood growing up. Um, all sharing and some very meaningful experiences together. So those two talks really hit home pretty hard. They're, they're very powerful. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, so since you are a psychologist, um, what do you think or like what does the future of psychedelic therapy look like? Because there is a lot of like stuff going on. I'm sure you pay attention to the stuff on Twitter and everything. There's a lot of different points of views and there's kind of like people breaking off into different groups and that kind of a thing. Um, and I, I, I think they're like I think we mentioned this last time that there's always going to be room for everybody right in their own however they want to contribute, whether it be scientifically, therapeutically. Um, just somebody that's interested in it as a top, you know, for me, it's like, uh, of course I've used these things for my own OCD and my own issues in the past, um, you know, therapeutically, but I also look at it as like a tool too, to, you know, just explore your own mind and metaphysics and different things. So, um, how do you feel about that now? I mean, like I said, there is some sort of, uh, 
stuff happening online with at least uh, from what I've been observing. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I I you know of course I'm a licensed clinical psychologist who um, is approaching this from a, a clinical perspective for, for the for the prospect that it can offer patients in a in sort of a, a, a med if I can be helpful in a in a sort of classic Western medical setting uh, delivery system, but that doesn't mean I'm wedded to that system or believe that's even the best system. In fact, there's a lot of problems with that system. So uh, I would say that, um, you know, the future of psychedelic medicine, psychedelic therapy, or the use of psychedelics for personal or spiritual growth um, is not restricted. It should not be restricted. And in my opinion, will not be restricted to simply a Western medical model where you go in and you have a therapist or a co-therapist and a prescriber of a, of a drug and you sit there and have your psychedelic experience with the music and the eye shades and um, there's preparation and there's integration. That's just a the model that is coming out of the research that's been done. But that's certainly not the only way. It's just it's it's a way for people to get access to these helpful treatments. We see with Oregon, for example, they're looking at like a licensed facilitator model or a licensed facility where people aren't necessarily licensed therapists or healthcare providers. They're just trained and licensed to do this work, uh, hold space for people to be guides, to be trip sitters, to be facilitators of psychedelic experiences. And that doesn't, you don't even have to carry a medical or a mental health diagnosis to get access to it. You can just sign up to do it for personal exploration, spiritual growth, personal change, that kind of thing. You're just curious about it and you can do it in a in a safe setting that's that's licensed to some degrees. And then, of course, there's all kinds of uh, recreational use, personal use uh, for uh, self-medication. There's underground clinics, uh, underground retreats, underground providers, shamans. You know, I don't I don't really think there's a wrong door. And my hope is that nobody is uh, is you know, excluded from from this just because one model is being put forth in one way doesn't mean that other models or other practitioners or shamans or guides aren't extremely valuable and needed. It's so needed in this space. And there are reputable people who have been doing this work for a long time. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. So um, I think there's really no wrong door as long as as long as people have good reputations and there's some sense that they're tried and true and they're not some someone just in it to make a buck, uh, whether it's a pharmaceutical company or um, or a pseudo shaman or something like that. Is, you know, there, there's ways to check it out. There's ways to determine if people are legit or not. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ways to get access to it. But, you know, you can grow your own mushrooms. People do that. I've had patients come in and tell me that they're growing their own mushrooms and using it on their own. I don't I don't advise that necessarily anything illegal, but hey, this is what what people are doing and if they can get access to it and use it in a personally beneficial way, that's that's great. Absolutely. Um so like the interesting thing when we talk about this is like it's slowly starting to come around um from the legality side of things. Now through that process, we, we kind of need these scientists and psychologists and psychiatrists and stuff, because 
it didn't look like it was going to become decriminalized or legalized without that, right? Like, I think um, in a society, if we would have kept some of the mystery schools, the Eleusinian mysteries, and continue that on, or some of these traditions like they have in Mesoamerica or whatever, uh, maybe we wouldn't have needed that, but this is kind of the vehicle that we need to get to this level now because of the 1970 stuff and the war on drugs and all that. So um, how do you feel about that? Because I, I, for me personally, it's like, I, I'm not saying, I know not everybody is responsible about it. Um, I've always tried to be as responsible as possible, uh, but it's also our own minds too. You know, it's like, if you can go skydiving, how come you can't? you know, explore your own mind kind of a thing. I, don't, I mean, how do you feel about that? Escape your own mind. Yeah. It's, yeah, Mind Escape podcast. Escape your own mind. Uh, cognitive, <laughs> cognitive liberty, right? It's about yeah. our, we have personal agency. We have personal choice. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really important. I feel pretty strongly about that. I think part of what you're asking and part of what's uh, coming to mind for me in in what you're asking is, you know, the the research and the scientists and the therapist, the licensed therapist or psychiatrists, prescribers, all that kind of stuff there, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration uh, approval process, the Drug Enforcement Agency a process, like all the, the scheduling of these drugs is being schedule one controlled substances. I mean, all of that serves a purpose, I suppose. I'm super critical of those systems. Um, but they are the systems that we have. And right now it's really just a means to an end. And frankly, if it wasn't for the research and everything that's being done, the, the awareness that the broader public now has uh, about the potential for these, these medicines, these tools to be super helpful, it wouldn't, wouldn't have existed. So you know, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to the researchers who have done so much work to get this into the public consciousness and to revive the uh, reality that that these tools are very useful. And yes, exactly. If we hadn't gone astray from, you know, ancient times uh, in terms of these tools or, um, you know, uh, the kinds of rituals and ceremonies and, and medicinal uses that we've seen in other cultures for for hundreds of years, if not longer, then we wouldn't necessarily need our Western science research model to get us back in the game here. But um, thank God we have. And I hope that just continues to broaden access. One thing that Rick Doblin said very specifically during his talk with us, and he said it publicly before, is that, look, we have a we have an MDMA treatment protocol that we're trying to get through to the finish line. So this medicine can be approved to help people after it's approved. You know, people are going to find creative ways to use this, hopefully in a very healthy and therapeutic way, maybe not using two co-therapists, maybe just using one therapist. Maybe instead of having three preparation sessions, you have 10 preparation sessions. Maybe there's only one dosing session instead of three dosing sessions. So there's all kinds of ways to um, change the model after we get it over the finish line through the the uh, the approval process that we have here in in the in the United States anyway and and I and that's not to the exclusion of the amazing work that's being done outside of research settings and and in in communities around the country and around the world. 
Yeah. I mean, I always say too, you know, as much as I love what's happening with science, we get to look into some of the mechanisms behind the way some of these molecules work and how they interact with our neurochemistry and everything. Uh, I do think we owe a lot to the clandestine chemists, the, you know, the old school hippies, you know, the people, the underground, you know, uh, users that were keeping this thing alive for so long, uh, as well as passing along the knowledge to, to produce these things or extract them or whatever. So, uh, but that aside, again, I think that, you know, now that we are in where we are, I think it is important if we're going to understand consciousness or try to, um, and look at it from a scientific perspective that we should do the research. And I think that, even if we would have continued with the other aspects of the spiritual stuff or the rituals or the esoteric side of things and kept that throughout history, I still think that we'd probably still be trying to look at this through a scientific lens. I mean, that's what we've always done since science has become a thing. So um, when you look at, uh, so we're talking about you know legalization and pushing this through. Um, growing up, this is all new, right? Like, I mean, Maurice and I, the only thing we had was Irwid. You know, we'd go on to Irwid and uh, look at dosage and, you know, how much, you know, and look at trip reports and uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was very, if you were doing this stuff back then, it was just kind of like, a, you know, you're kind of just jumping in the deep end, right? There was really no information out there. I mean, we did a lot of research too, and I've always been kind of hesitant with any sort of putting anything in my body. Uh, not that I won't try things, but you got to do your research. So, um, so this whole thing's new. Uh, and now you see a lot more information out there. People have resources. I see people online like, Oh, I'm about to do psilocybin for the first time. What's a good, do you know, and you have like a million people answer and then they'll point you to, um, uh, different videos or, you know, there's all these resources that basically we didn't have back then. Uh, do you think that that's a good thing or do you think that that's a bad, I guess not a bad thing, but do you think that it's kind of like maybe saturating, um, the market with information? Cause there is a lot of like competing different ideas or some people say microdose, some people say macrodose and in reality, lots of different things work for lots of different peoples cause we're all different people. So. Yeah. I mean, from a, from a, personal perspective, I came into psychedelics as a kid uh, using tons of psychedelics um, and not in an informed way, but um, I, I was uh, curious about the spiritual side of it, even as a kid, um, wondering what value this might have spiritually. Um, it opened me up to, um, you know, meditation teachers and different philosophies and all kinds of stuff that it they're related to now I, I misused them as a kid but I, we didn't have access well we had access to related information back then i mean i can remember um having access to some some ideas about lsd and psilocybin and when i say when i was a kid we're talking in the um mid to late 80s early 90s um and there was there was some information out there um, not that we paid any attention to it as teenagers, but you know, the, there was information and misinformation. What what is available out there now, Mike and Maurice, uh, I think is fantastic. And I think you know, one can't do enough research. And I think what we find is that as we continue down the road of curiosity and exploration and research and listening to podcasts like this one and pulling up articles and stuff. I think you, over time, we all begin to learn who 
who are the legit players here? Who's talking truth? Where, where are their, where's their information coming from? And you can begin to sort out over time the reputable sources versus the ones that seem a little bit more sketchy. And, uh, and I think that we also, we need to remain open to the fact that there are no gurus in this space. There's no final truth. This is all stuff that's an ongoing, very fluid process. The, the more we get interested and curious and, and pursue a different opinions, different research studies, different attitudes, different molecules, uh, I think the more informed we are, the better off everybody is. No, I, I, I agree. Uh, I just, um, like I said, I think that some people think they will see something on a microdose and they'll think, oh, that's the way to go or, oh, oh I got to do more. So I, I guess that's what I was saying is like, um, you know, when Maurice and I were younger, we literally, maybe we were nerds, but we read like everything. <laughs> we would sit there in this basement and just read all the trip reports for different molecules and see what it would do. And, hey, let's try this one one day. And, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, uh, what do you think about... Um, like the default mode network and psychedelics and this idea that um, it disables our default mode network and lets us get outside of ourselves a little bit. Um, as a psychologist, is that something that's appealing or do you think, you know, there's obviously there needs to be more research done and there are some um, false narratives around it out there. But I mean, how, how do you approach that or how do you look at the default mode network? Well, that model, you know, put forth by Robin Carhart Harris, the, the Rebus model, the default mode network uh, as as a, a framework for understanding how psychedelics uh, affect people's consciousness and ways of seeing themselves in the world. I think it's a valuable model. And and even Robin himself will say, look, this is just a, a model that we have. It's a, it's a working model that is totally up for debate and can be torn down and dismissed maybe years from now. But for, for now, this is a working hypothesis, a working theory. And, you know, they've even discovered things like the salience network or the executive, mm -hmm. something like the executive network. So yeah, there's the different. Salience, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's not just the default mode network or the salience network or the executive network and all these. So it's just more of looking at ourselves and looking at the brain and the mind rather than looking at sort of uh, individual um neurochemicals or individual anatomical parts of the brain or the central nervous system. It's looking at a sort of an interconnected model of, of how we, we are put together as humans and how we interact with each other, how we develop ideas and how we get stuck in habit loops behaviorally thought wise. So the default mode network is helpful in describing that. And I think it's a useful model. It's one that is accessible to a lot of people. It's understandable. Um, but is it the truth? I, 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 I'm skeptical. You know, I, I think it's just a really useful framework that helps move us in the direction of better understanding. And maybe it'll be a footing on which we can sort of continue to build over time. Uh, but for now, it's a pretty compelling model and it's a useful one. Basically what it is, just to explain to anybody listening, it's the default mode network is something like our egos or the way in which I'm talking to you guys right now, the way in which my senses and my speech and my my understanding of myself and the world is functioning on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the default mode network. It, it's, it's a very functional thing because I need to screen out a lot of stuff in order to be functional in the world. 
Then you take psychedelics and that whole system quiets down and all of a sudden different connections are being made. Like maybe I, my sense of vision or hearing or touch or smell or taste is, is altered slightly. I didn't really realize that I could see things in that way. I didn't realize I could understand that who I am in relation to the outside world is, is, is not what had, what it, what it had seemed, uh, under, you know, normally. And so it basically allows new connections or new, a new perceptions, new realities to be, um, to come to the foreground for a while. And, you know, ideally that has a more profound shift, um, in a, in a more permanent way in, in pot and hopefully in a positive way. Uh, but a lot of times people, Oh, I think we might have, uh, you there, Maurice? Yeah. I think we might have lost uh, Dr. Rick here. You there, Dr. Uh -huh. Rick? Give it one second here. Yeah, I'm uh, not seeing anything. Yeah. I don't know if he got thrown right out or his video looked pretty clean though one like mine i don't know what's going on i just looked at my all my settings and they're all high i don't know what the yeah, problem I don't know. is you've got a very crunchy screen as well yeah sometimes it does it and sometimes it doesn't it's a real crunch bar um let's see if maybe we can get him back in here have him uh call in yeah let's see if you have him rejoin here um what do you think about the default mode network or this idea uh, that it your brain gets disabled somewhat from your your day to day consciousness or your ego or whatever in these experiences? Um, I think that the, that's a, that's a valid point. I was actually talking to my therapist today about a lot about dreams and stuff, and one cool thing about dreams is like it puts you in a state that eliminates the ego while you're awake. So that's why. Some people, you know, they'll look at dreams and it, it almost gives you access to look at your fears and other things that you wouldn't want to access when you're awake and in that normal mindset. And I think that psychedelics can kind of open the door as well. I think actually you can do way more work. Problem with dreams are you don't really have control over them unless you're in a, a lucid state. But, you know, with psychedelics and things like that, you actually can go in and cut off some of these uh, pre-programmed, uh, notions and kind of get in there and do some of the work. What do what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that was one of the main things, uh, from my past experiences with psilocybin. Um, especially when I was in my late twenties, my darkest days of, uh, OCD, uh, just breaking up that day-to-day -day consciousness and being able to like get outside yourself and have kind of like a weird or mystical experience and look at what's going on from outside of yourself was super, super help helpful. Um, I do think though, um, I think he's right though. I don't, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I don't necessarily think that that's, you know, it's a good model. Let's see if it holds up. But, uh, I think that there's some contradictory ever evidence too. Um, so I guess we'll just have to see, uh, you know, where that goes, but, um, yeah, yeah. 
I thought that was cool though, because I, I literally was just talking about that, and it's kind of real a, a close relation to the the dream thing. But I, you know, it's my my therapist is very he's 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 like huge into dreams and stuff like that. Maybe I can ask him if he wants to come on and talk about them. But he yeah. analyzes a lot of dreams, and you know, it's it, it's the young theories too, where you can what does your dream mean to you? And you put meaning to a lot of the stuff as well. So your dream may or may not be full nonsense, but when you analyze it, you're using the perception that you have of your life and you give meaning sometimes to these different attributes within the dream, which, you know, it's like the placebo effect. If you're going to analyze something and it's giving you meaning, is it, is it meaningless? Which I don't think so. So, there is, there is a lot because we were analyzing one of my dreams and he's like, well, what do you think about it? And I was, I was giving meaning to things. So obviously in my mind, I'm consciously thinking about these things. May My dream may or may not have been connected to that, but excuse me, I think in the psychedelic space, it's, it's kind of the same things. Like if you take psychedelics and a thought will arise or like you know with psychedelic like with the mushrooms and stuff like that it kind of forces you to look at your problem and uh yeah no absolutely you would actually here here we got dr rick coming back in all right um that's how you link it baby so um in terms of uh you would like this this carl Jung book maurice it's called the modern man's search for a soul um yeah so I think you should definitely check that out. Um, let's see here. I'll file use Amazon what it was initially made to do. Yeah, yeah, it's called Modern Man Search for a Soul. Let's get uh, Doctor Rick back in here. Oh, now I'm Hold back. On. Okay, that was weird. Yeah, give me there one second go. here. Um, playing a little camera uh camera roulette here don't go. know what happened there guys i didn't it didn't even go out i went downstairs to check the router and it was uh oh i don't i, I it mean was, it's all it's all good maurice and i uh we were just uh expanding on that a little bit i was just getting his perspective on the default mode network but i was actually going to point out um i think i read a paper i think it was maybe three or four years ago about uh cannabis's effect on the DMN and they said it didn't really have much of effect at all, which is interesting because for my own, you know, cannabis is one of my favorite, uh, compounds. And if you take an edible or you hit some sort of concentrate or something like that, you know, you can get kind of out there. And I've actually had similar experiences to that feeling, you know, like when you come down off psilocybin and you like want to get your life together and you start reflecting on all the negative things and what you need to fix and everything. Uh, I get that from cannabis sometimes. So I don't know if that's even connected to that whole process. I, I think, I think it is. There's, there's reason to believe that there, it has some impact on at least, you know, when you think about altered states of consciousness or non-ordinary states of consciousness, definitely, Cannabis uh, alters your state of consciousness differently than alcohol, differently than opioids, differently than cocaine, um, you know, differently than DMT or um, MDMA. But it still has a quality of I don't know if it's quieting the default mode network, but it might be um, it might be uh, allowing 
the same kind of new perspective that that happens when you take a psychedelic and you and you quiet down the default mode network. There might be something with cannabis that that influences the default mode network, maybe not in quieting down, but maybe it does um, foster the same kind of new or new connections that can happen um, like with psychedelics. So it's, mm. it's considered back in the day, it was considered a mild psychedelic or a mild hallucinogen. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I think there's there's I mean, and the people are doing cannabis assisted psychotherapy. So there you go. What do you think about the word hallucinogen? Because so like I've been talking about this recently. So the way I look at it is um, like a hallucination is something that's not really there. At least that's my perception of the word. So when you look at something like a tropane, a tropane like Datura or um, I don't even know, whatever other ones people, they're, they're usually not pleasant, but if anybody's doing tropanes, you know, I think we were talking with Dr. Andrew Gallimore about this, the way that it activates in your brain is different, almost like you're seeing a vision of something that's not there, as opposed to, let's say, a tryptamine, where that that's working off of your own serotonin receptors, your 5-HT2A, and you're still seeing, you're not seeing anything that's not there. I guess maybe if you do like a DMT uh, freebase or something like that, but if you were just doing psilocybin or LSD, you might see colors and stuff, but you're seeing things that are part of this reality. They're just flowing differently, right? So like, I don't know, I don't know. That's just what I've been throwing around. So I don't, it's not that I don't like the word hallucinogen, but is that the best way to describe the tryptamine experiment, experience? I don't know, I, that's something I've just been thinking about. Yeah, I, I don't I'm not a big fan of the word hallucinogen or hallucinogenic because it suggests that it's not real. Um, you know, the word tropane or tropic psychotropic medications, we heard that term before, right? The root, the root of the word tropic means a, a turn, you know, a shift in something. So psychotropic means you're shifting something psychologically mm -hmm. or psychiatrically psychotropic medication um psychedelic is a is the word of the day that's the one that's ex wi widely accepted mind manifesting uh soul manifesting so it's bringing forth aspects of the mind that might that are actually not unreal they're not hallucinogenic they're not hallucinations they're actually manifesting from the mind psychomimetic uh, Psychomimetic, meaning that something that um, imitates or mimics psychotic processes. That's a term that was went out of fashion quite a while ago. Um, I really like the term entheogen, and some people really don't like the term entheogen because it has a woo-woo spiritual kind of feel to it, creating the divine within, generating godlike experiences from inside, it's, you know, somehow connecting to a divinity, something like that. And I, I like that term because it does sort of capture, I think, a little bit more that there's uh, there's greater realities out there beyond just our, our limited understanding of things. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. The ter terminology matters. The words matter. And, and I, I do have a preference for the term entheogen. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't mind. I don't mind really any of them. I don't even mind hallucinogen. I just explain to people that I think that... Um, you know, most people get this idea if they've never done psychedelics that you're going to take something and you're going to see like a purple elephant in the room or something <laughs> like that, you know, but, and it's really just 
playing off of everything that's actually there. Um, I mean, sometimes you might get out there. Let's face it. There's there's some weird experiences to you be might had. see a jellyfish. Yeah, yeah, but um, <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, it's it's just playing off the nature of of what we think of as this reality. Uh, I like entheogen um, because I think some of my most transformative experiences have been somewhat spiritual and mystical in nature, and I think that. Um, how do you feel about that? Because right now you have this dichotomy. You have the spiritual, mystical thing happening, and a lot of people that love that side of it, but then you have this very materialist approach to it too through the, the scientific process and looking at the mechanisms and everything. And it seems like there's some cool people on on the more materialist side that also are open to some of the the woo-woo or mystical or maybe some sort of panpsychism or something like that. Uh, but then there are people that are pretty dogmatic materialists about it, though, too, um, which I think those people are p- the people that are missing out on the point of the whole mystical, spiritual nature of it because I think that that's the transformative, uh, at least for me. I can't speak for anybody else, but for my own OCD, severe OCD that was treatment-resistant and, um, you know, I've been through, anybody that's had OCD knows it's it's hell if you don't have it under control. Um, so uh, going through that, yeah, I would say for me, I've always said the mystical or spiritual nature of it is, is what gave me the perspective um, to move forward in a, in a different path. So, I mean, how do you f- look at that or that dichotomy? Yeah, I, I love nuance. I think if you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, I'm, I'm always trying to find... Um, both the uh, edges of the po- polar, you know, polarized sides of things, like those di- dichotomous perspective, either it's a spiritual thing or totally scientific material reductionistic thing, and really understanding those extremes, but only in the service of basically tearing them down mm-hmm. and uh, finding out that, you know, there's there's value in, in lots of ways that looking at this stuff, there's a, a tremendous amount of value in, in the spiritual, mystical experience side of things. And there's real potential value in the reductionistic, materialistic side of things. It's just that when we get too dogmatic about either one of those, mm-hmm. I think we run into some some real problems. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously, not obviously, but I would say that I'm, very much with you on the spiritual mystical side of things. I think that's really just such a heartwarming uh, consciousness, expanding, beautiful, uh, powerfully disturbing, sometimes part of psychedelic experiences that I think is important. And I, I don't think I would be attracted to psychedelic medicine or research or therapy if it wasn't for the, the spiritual side of things. I would say that the argument that I've heard that's most compelling for the reductionistic scientific side of things is really that if there's if there's something about these molecules that are helpful without having the spiritual experiences associated with it, just from a from a neuro connectivity standpoint, what what they say is neuroplasticity or or psychoplastogen like something that makes your thinking a little bit more flexible in a healthy way without having a robust mystical experience there's probably some value in that that somebody might actually improve if there's a drug that they can take that that makes them 
um, see themselves differently and experience the world differently. So their well-being is is improved. I, I'm all for that. But I, I like I said, I do lean on the. Are you guys still with me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, lean, I, lean, um, I lean on the spiritual side of things because I think it's much more um, it's much more compelling to have experiences where we really feel uh, a greater sense of awe in in our lives, and a greater sense of connection that feels very real and and um, it's just very healing. I, again, not to say that finding a drug that is psychedelic like but doesn't have the mystical is is a bad thing i i just i'm more on the on the spiritual yeah. side of no no i completely agree, we agree. With you. um i would actually say to highlight your point what you were saying is is a great point there is uh i think i'm trying to think of a good example oh, so okay so a good example would be they isolated a compound um from iboga and they call it tabernathalog uh, and I think they use it for opioid addiction and trying to get people off opioids and heroin and stuff like that. Um, that doesn't have any psychoactive properties, although it's derived from, you know, a boga, which is psychedelic. Uh, so I've heard it both ways from different people. I've heard people that have done iboga that's claim same thing. It's the mystical, spiritual aspect of it. And reading, there's... Um, I forget what the paper is called, but where they're talking about the tabernathalog and how it has been somewhat effective from what they can tell. Um, I obviously probably more research and science has to be done on that, but that highlights your point that maybe somebody that doesn't want to have that psychedelic experience can take that compound and maybe it would help in some way. Who knows? Um, but everybody's different, right? I think that that's kind of what you're saying is like everybody, let's use this as another tool. You know, if you need an SSRI, if you need psychedelics, if you need CBT, if you need whatever it is, all those options should be on the table. Yeah. And there was a great, there was a great podcast that came out a while ago. It was a panel discussion. So uh, David Olson is a guy who founded a company called Delix. If you haven't had a chance to have him on the show, look him up. Um, so he's all about finding those compounds that have non non-mystical experiences, just compounds that are derived from psilocybin or LSD or, uh, you know, 5-HT2A activating uh, molecules that don't have psychedelic uh, mystical experience associated with it. And he was on a panel with David Olson, uh, I'm sorry, David Nichols, David Nichols being yeah. uh, Professor Amer not David Nichols from the Power Trip uh, Cover Story podcast, but more uh, David Nichols from, um, from Purdue, and a uh, longtime researcher in the field of MDMA and psychedelics. Yeah, the um, uh, psychopharmacologist. Isn't he the one that synthesized yeah. the DMT for Rick Strassman for the uh, spirit molecule? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the MDMA, I think, for uh, MAPS. Um, and then Ghoul Dolan from Johns Hopkins, whose uh, work on um, critical periods uh, in, in, in her research there. So they were all debating this very subject of you know, um, the mystical experience versus just, you know, a reductionistic, you know, uh, compound that doesn't have the mystical experience associated with it. And it's just a fascinating conversation. So if you Google, um, yeah, if you Google David Olson, David Nichols and Gould Dolan, uh, you'll, it'll come up. It was Kyle Buller from Psychedelics Today who interviewed them and, and ran the panel. It's really, really fascinating discussion. Awesome. Yeah. I'll have to All check right. that out. Um, 
what what's your favorite uh compound either from your past or stuff you work with now to help people like what what do you what's you, what do you think is the most promising in terms of therapy well i think uh, i would say you know pretty right off the top of my head would be mdma as being probably one of the most compelling compounds not in my opinion classically a psychedelic but in terms of its healing potential, certainly for post-traumatic stress disorder, but for depression, for couples therapy, for anxiety, uh, for a lot of different things, I think MDMA is, is, a, is a much gentler, very powerful entree into the world of overcoming some, some problematic behaviors, uh, you know, there's studies that have been done with MDMA with alcohol use disorder. So using MDMA to treat addiction. Um, the reason why I say that partly is because of its quality, uh, its impact on your heart and your emotions and being a very like the love classic love drug and having that um, if it's done well, the appropriate dosage with the right set and setting, not necessarily hundreds of milligrams at a concert um, where you're dancing all night long. Like and, Maurice uh, and I have talked about fish shows where we flipped out at the fish show. Yeah. I think there's ways to do it therapeutically. So that would be my go-to right off the top. I think, honestly, I would say that I think it's a shame that um, LSD is not um, something that is at the top of the list in terms of research I wish that I think LSD is a very powerful compound, uh, depending on the dosage and again, how it's administered. I think it can be very useful for people uh, to change their feelings, their thoughts and behaviors. We know it was studied voluminously, a huge amount of studies for alcohol use disorder back in the 50s and 60s. And so I think um, alcohol being such a problem in our society addiction being such a problem in our society. I think LSD is not studied enough nowadays. Um, and I think it's different enough from psilocybin that I kind of wish it was studied more. So I would say my top two are MDMA and LSD, um, not necessarily combined, although there is, I think, a proposed studies, I think somewhere in in Europe, looking at uh, the combination of MDMA and LSD. I don't know if it's candy flipping or hippie flipping, yeah. something like that. To yeah, be there, used there's for psilocybin for, and uh, uh, MDMA. Actually, that was one of my most mystical uh, experiences. Was combining MDMA with psilocybin. Uh, I've that's about hippie it flipping. I think yeah. candy candy flipping is LSD yep. and MDMA. But being done in a research trial, I think that's that's fascinating. Yeah. So, and there is actually a research study uh, getting underway here in Vermont, looking at LSD for anxiety. And so that's that's good. I'm I'm glad to hear that at least it's getting some some attention. Yeah, I think, you know, um when you look at that, for me, I've always loved psilocybin and I know psilocybin's probably the safest um um uh, when you look at like, you know, on the uh lethal dose scale. Um I think uh psilocybin is the safest, but then when you look at MDMA, I think some of the isn't some of the hesitancy because it's not as um, biologically safe or physiologically safe as some of the other compounds. And that's like kind of not holding it back, but like you said, you have to do the right dosage. 
I, I mean, I can speak from my own personal experiences with MDMA. I, I just mentioned it, but we were at a fish show. I think, I think it was 200 milligrams we each took and that's a decent, uh, a decent journey. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had quite, <laughs> quite the experience that lasted all through the night. Um, but when you look at, I think LSD is somewhat safe as well. Uh, but again, you, when you're talking about, you have the body, right? And then you have the mind. And if somebody's susceptible to like schizophrenia or they're close to some sort of psychotic break, that might not be the best option for them. But is, where's that line? Like where, cause I know these things can help people that are already in some psychosis or already having issues, whether it be anxiety disorders, depression disorders, PTSD, whatever. But where's that line between um, when you should do it? You know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Like, cause you're not supposed to do it if you're about to have some sort of break or if you have like a mental health history within your family. Uh, but then, you know, I guess you're already going to be taking a chance at that point. But I just always wondered that because it can be helpful if you're already in that mode or that mind, uh, whatever it be, uh, psychosis, but then to get there, you could, that could also induce it. So it's helpful once you're already there, but it might not be helpful if you're not already there, if that makes sense. Well, you're, yeah, we're talking about a couple of different things. One is sort of the, the biological safety of these compounds. Right. Um, the, the term in the field is a lethal dose, so ED50 or whatever it is, how, how the LD50 and yeah. ED50 effective dose and lethal dose and where where is it where is the appropriate dosage on a physical level i think that there's some truth to what you're saying in terms of like overdosing on mdma physiologically biologically is much more um, dangerous potentially than overdosing on psilocybin or lsd interestingly enough side note but related to what we're talking about one of the speakers we had at our conference in june was leonard picard Leonard Picard was uh, was charged in uh, the late 90s for allegedly supplying 90% of the world's LSD. If you haven't had him on the show, that would be uh, fantastic. He's a very eloquent speaker, and he also predicted the fentanyl crisis before he was arrested for allegedly uh, cr supplying the 90% of the world's LSD, um, and he was released. He was served 20 years incarceration for that alleged crime of, of having um, a large supply of LSD. But he described at the conference that um, it was either him or someone he knew was basically um, bathed in LSD, the, the vat of LSD, the container that he, they had uh, broke and, it, and all the LSD went over their entire body and was absorbed through their skin. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions mm -hmm. of micrograms of LSD. What happened they didn't to that die. person? What happened to them? Yeah, they didn't die. They were fine. I mean, after a few weeks, it, they didn't get a few they weeks. Sid Barrett out. Yeah, I was going to say they didn't go the way of Sid Barrett, did they? No, but that's what you're talking about. You have the body and the mind. And I think there's, there's real risk to pay attention to when it comes to using these compounds for people that may be susceptible to psychosis. But we do have to remember that schizophrenia and psychotic disorders and even bipolar one disorder, those are exceedingly rare conditions, right? This is, we're not talking about a lot of people 
having either a family history of it or um, being personally at risk for it or having it themselves. So I don't know how real that risk is. One of the arguments here in Vermont for our delay in the legalization of cannabis was that the leaders, the psychiatric leaders and the Department of Health here in Vermont were arguing that cannabis is widely known to induce uh, what's called first episode psychosis. So basically like the sort of reefer madness all over again, you're gonna smoke weed and you're gonna have a psychotic break. Therefore, we should not legalize this drug. And you know, that's, again, it's, it, are we seeing the same thing with psychedelics? Like we're now we're framing psychedelics as being responsible for inducing psychosis. I, I just don't think that's realistic. I think it's yeah. wise to know the risks that are associated with it, but people can have high doses of mushrooms and LSD and not be induced into a permanent state of schizophrenia or psychosis at, at right. all. And, and I know I have a, I have a friend who was negatively, I have two people that I knew growing up that were permanently negatively affected by their LSD use. So it does happen. I've, I've had personal experience yeah. with it, but not for the vast majority. I don't know anybody. I mean, I'm trying to think anybody of our friends. I don't think I know anybody. The only thing I know of, there's an anecdotal story. I know Hamilton Morris from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia talks about one of his best friends did a uh, psilocybin derivative uh, and had not he's permanently like in psychosis um so again is there some the problem with that though is since we really don't understand consciousness and how these things work we don't even know what causes schizophrenia um for the most part i know there's some ideas out there but um since we don't know these things it's going to be very hard to it is kind of like a just a buyer beware, like a you know do your research and look into your family history and know your own self and know your own mind and if you know talk to your if you have a therapist or a psychiatrist maybe speak to them, uh, kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, you're you're right though. There is no like guide to to this is pretty much you know the wild west in terms of that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, you mentioned um, so. When you talk about these compounds um, in the way that, like, you know, there are some negative aspects, but for the most part, I mean, I've only had positive experiences. And I know when people say, oh, you know, I flipped out or I had a terrible trip, um, unless they're having an episode, which we talked about, which you, you mentioned is super, super rare. Um, I've always found that talking more with that person they just were confronted with their own demons or the skeletons in the closet or stuff they haven't really been dealing with and i think but that's what makes it so therapeutic is if you can uh challenge those those demons or those ideas and um, deal with it that way um do you when you look at the how the mind works in that regard um how how come you can do that on psychedelics, but you can't do that in normal psychotherapy as an effect as effectively, I guess is what I'm saying. Cause it seems like the people that I talk to that have gone to therapy their whole entire lives don't have the same kind of breakthroughs that they do uh, when they have these psychedelic experiences or go through some sort of therapy or transformative experience or whatever. I mean, what do you have to say about that? Cause you are a psychologist. So, and this is just my perception. I'm not trying to speak for the whole world, but uh, what do you think about that? 
Well, you bring up an important point about um, uh, challenging experiences. And, you know, what we were saying before about the, uh, the rarity, the, in general, it's, it's a very small percentage of the population that has schizophrenia, um, very small percentage of the population that has bipolar one disorder. Now you add a psychedelic into the situation, um, whether you're at risk for psychosis or not. Um, we don't want to forget set and setting, right? This is a term we hear all the time in psychedelic therapy, set and setting. What's your mindset going into this experience and what's the setting in which it's happening? Are you taking 200 milligrams of MDMA at a fish show and you're smoking weed and you're having a couple of beers and you're yes, listening to loud music and you're, yeah, all these kinds of things. <laughs> That's, that can be a very therapeutic and rich and fun environment. But for some people that if they take 400 mics of LSD and they lose their friends and they're in a strange city mm. with some music playing and a lot of weird people around, it could yeah. be pretty, pretty upsetting. So now imagine having uh, 200 milligrams of MDMA in a therapist's office or um, with a guide in a teepee with a fire and some music playing and you're safe. And even if really upsetting stuff comes up. You're, you know you're in a safe, protected environment and it's all going to be okay. You can have the most crazy things happen to you, demons and all kinds of things come, come but you know you're in a safe, supportive environment, or at least that's uh, how the, uh, the system was set up as you were thinking about going to have this experience and now you're having the experience. So I don't want to forget that piece of it. And, and to your point about psychotherapy, and just, um, you know, are people able to access the kinds of changes needed to improve their lives, to reduce their depression, to uh, reduce their post-traumatic stress disorder, reduce their anxiety or treat their OCD symptoms? Um, you know, I think the research is pretty clear. Psychotherapy is really helpful for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. It just it, it just it just is. And and psychedelic medicines can be helpful for a large number of people as well but psychotherapy doesn't work for everybody and psychedelic therapy or psychedelic medicines don't work for everybody now you combine the two and you think about combining psychedelic medicine with psychotherapy you're probably optimizing that that situation there's a real harmony between it's not one or the other you know mm -hmm. i i kind of i don't like the expression that we've all heard that like doing MDMA or doing psilocybin is like five years of therapy in eight hours. Yeah, I've heard that. Well, it's true. It's true that there's some accelerated insight and growth and change and transformation. I'm not, I'm not challenging that at all. For a lot of people, that could be a very powerful eight hours for sure. But psychotherapy is something that works and is helpful for a lot of people. And, um, and, and sometimes going to the gym several times a week or going to therapy weekly or every other week for a few years is actually a really good practice for your mental health. It can be really, you know, you might not have your, you know, your whole spiritual understanding of the cosmos, you know, upended and, and transformed, but by gosh, I think, I think a lot of people benefit from having uh, a really good therapy experience and, you know, about 30, 30% of people probably doesn't benefit very much. But, you know, 60 to 70 percent of people are, are really helped by it. And if you look at psychedelic research, what are the percentages that we're seeing out of um, 
you know, the maps for PTSD, MDMA for PTSD research or the MDMA and alcohol use disorder research or the psilocybin for depression research. That's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing rates of response or remission up in the 60 to 70 percent range, which is far better than um, some of the SSRIs like Lexapro, Celexa, Prozac, those kinds of things. So I think it's not meant to be one or the other. Uh, everything has its place and its value. Meditation, breath work, uh, spending time in nature. There's all kinds of things that can be helpful, either combined with psychedelic therapy or psychedelic use or uh, on their own. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with all of that. Bunch um, of tools in the toolbox. Yeah. Um, exactly. I wanted to ask you about schizophrenia because we were doing a Twitter or I was doing a Twitter space like last week and we were, somebody was, was talking about it in one of the spaces. Um, I know that they were testing cause again, they don't know the mechanism of what causes this. And I know that in the past they've done tests to see, uh, if maybe DMT endogenous DMT creation might cause that. So they've tested urine. They haven't found any traces in the urine. I know that there was a theory that maybe it was your, your gut or microbiome in your gut and most of your serotonin's contained in your gut. So there might be something going on there. Uh, I heard another theory. This, this is the one that the guy in the space has brought up is I forget who they said was doing this research, but it's like the idea of, um, like shocking yourself or like, um, you know, when you're, you're caught off guard by something, but you're caught off guard by your own thoughts or your own, you know, things and, and the way that it manifests in your mind. So it's something having to do with the cells, like they're surprised or something like that. I don't know if you've looked into whatever the latest research is, but I thought that was an interesting take, almost like, um, um, you know, your body's not is not responding or understanding that part of your other body's acting in a way and it's being caught off guard by that. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm not, I would say I'm not a specialist when it comes to schizophrenia. Obviously I went to graduate school and have a doctorate in psychology. And so I've studied it from a, from a, um, clinical perspective an academic perspective. I've worked with people with schizophrenia, not a whole lot, because again, not a large number of the population is struggling with schizophrenia. And those that are, are usually, um, either, uh, they're, their, their lives typically would not include that of a, of a clinical psychologist in an outpatient uh, psychotherapy setting. They're, they're usually um, connected with a psychiatrist or a community agency that has case managers and, you know, a lot of community and family supports, but not typically having a, a psychologist, unless, unless I was a kind of clinical psychologist that worked in an inpatient unit in a hospital that would be around that a little bit more. So in terms of like the theories that are coming out around schizophrenia, I don't, I don't really know. I haven't heard that about um, the gut microbiome, serotonin. I mean, I've heard that with yeah. regards to depression, but I know that schizophrenia is more related to what's called the D2 receptors, the dopamine. It's a, more of a dopaminergic kind of thing. So the drugs that we use to treat schizophrenia are dopaminergic drugs, usually uh, antagonists that block the D2 receptor um, to try to quiet some of the symptoms, uh, some of the voices or the... Um, yes, yeah, so that's the, what this person was saying, like the internal dialogue that you or I would have with ourselves, it's catching that person off guard. Like they don't know that they're talking to themselves or something like that. that that's part of the theory. And it, it sounded 
interesting but again i don't know enough about it i thought i'd ask you because uh you know like you said you have a little bit of a history with it but yeah i mean um uh, that, that one's, it's, it's kind of interesting from, uh, cause I have my own mental health issues. I was just curious. Uh, I know I've known a couple people with it. Um, and yeah, but, uh, well, what's, what's interesting about that too, Mike, is the, um, there's a type of therapy that is used in psychedelic, uh, therapy or, or, or used as a helpful model when thinking about doing psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and that's called internal family systems. An internal internal family system is basically what's called like a parts model so that we have different parts of ourselves. We have protectors and firefighters and all kinds of different ways in which we can understand different parts of our personalities or how different parts of us feel in different situations and learning to work with the different parts of ourselves. And um, it's interesting as it's applied to psychedelics, right, because we used the term earlier in this podcast, psycho, psychotomimetic, right? So mimicking mm-hmm. psychosis. So there is, in my opinion, a relationship between psychedelic experiences and schizophrenia or psychotic, psychotic disorders. And I think there's also more room to do research with uh, psychedelics to look at some helpful treatments for schizophrenia rather than seeing psychedelic, um, people suffering from schizophrenia or psychotic disorders is being ruled out from being eligible for any research. Is there any studies that you know of or anybody proposing those studies or anything like that? Anything on the forefront? I don't think the 1950s and 60s. I think they were probably looking at that more. And I think there's some research back then that showed some promise in looking at that. You know, one of the terms or one of the ideas that that we know um, is popular is Stan Groff that said something along the lines of, you know, what the microscope was for biology or the telescope was for astronomy, psychedelics are for psychiatry or psychology. And um, to me, that means, you know, everything's on the table, including schizophrenia, including uh, any, I mean, it's transdiagnostic, basically like any diagnosis, eating disorders, um, you, you name it. Are, are these molecules helpful across various conditions? So I think I think we're doing a real disservice by basically blocking um, certain conditions from being studied uh, using psychedelic medicine. So I think there's there's potential there. Maybe that's a controversial notion. I don't know. Ah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> that's how yeah, you push you things know. along. Yeah, that's that's science, baby. Um, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, no. Uh, do you have a little bit of time? Let's let's wrap it up here and do a short Patreon with you if you have a little bit more time and. Uh, Dude, this was super, super fun as usual, super uh, enlightening. Obviously, you have a lot of knowledge uh, on the mind and everything. And I know last time we we went kind of woo, so this time I wanted to look at a little bit more of the scientific aspects and just like your background and uh, psychology and stuff like that. But uh, maybe next time we have you on, we'll swing back the other way to the, to the woo side and uh, do a little yeah. bit more woo work. But uh, yeah. And actually, the next conference that we have in 2023, I hope to lean more on the woo side. You know, we called it the Psychedelic Science and Spirituality Summit, but I would say it leaned a little bit more heavily on the science side, which is fine. It was really interesting and it was a great conference. But the next time we do it, we're going to lean more on the woo side of things, emphasize the spiritual, emphasize the mystical, 
get some non-scientist presenters out there, people who are doing underground work potentially coming and talking about their experiences to share with the wider public. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for more woo. Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. If anybody is on Twitter, you should go check out and follow uh, Dr. Rick. It's at Dr. Rick Barnett. I have the, the link down below. Uh, and also check out the uh, the psychedelic summit again. I think you mentioned what was that website again that where they can check that out. The yeah, vermontpsychedelic.org, all lowercase one word, vermontpsychedelic.org, and then the password for the video replay is gratitude. Mm, interesting. Beautiful. I'll add that information at the video about uh, at the at the video below the video after we're done as well so people can check that out because uh they had some amazing speakers and i know everybody had some good energy flowing through there so uh, i look forward to the one that they're going to try and do this fall and uh, maybe maurice and i or one of us can head out on, out there uh at some point yeah, next, fall. next fall yeah. um yeah. again so thank you so much if anybody's interested we're about to start a patreon you can check us out uh the link tree is down below We've got Patreon. We've got, uh, you know, you want to leave us a nice review. We've got merch stores, all sorts of stuff. So check out our link tree. Uh, we really appreciate it. Shout out again to Ty, the T-shirt contest winner from last month. Maurice sent that out to you if you haven't heard already. So congratulations. And, uh, yeah, we, we love everybody. And uh, stay safe out there. And we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Thanks, guys.